Abby. And I'm Georgie. Coming to you with chats about all aspects of design, creativity and its influence on life. Can I get a whoop whoop? Whoop whoop. This This is Creative Clinks. Welcome back to another episode of Creative Clinks. This time we are interviewing my uncle who is a Buddhist monk in Thailand. He's been doing that for quite a few years now and thought that it was definitely worthwhile getting his perspective on the creative industry with his meditation experience and and things like that. So welcome, Will. Hello. Hi. Good to see you both. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad that you've been able to make time and um, we were just saying beforehand that we may or may not get some roosters (laughs) having an appearance on the show as well, so that'll be interesting. (laughs) Alrighty, well, I guess to kick it off is that where did you first find your creativity? For me, um, first of all, it was music, I would say. So, um, and that came from really just when I was younger, Um, music was just a huge part of my life and most of my friends' lives too. Music was just a big deal, you know. And uh, we would all learn, you know, about what music we should be listening to through our parents' uh, vinyl collections, you know. <laughs> uh, and if we were lucky, we would have a, um, someone with an older brother or sister who had moved to the city, to Sydney, for example. Then they would be um, giving us all these bands that we needed to, to listen to. Um, so from that I got into playing drums and um, I really enjoyed that so uh, I was playing in bands for probably around five or six years in my early 20s and um, then that turned to playing guitar (coughs) but I was mainly just playing guitar by myself and uh, I was really just getting more into the creative process and how enjoyable that was and I really uh, lost interest in um, having other people hear it or playing on stage or anything like that. So kind of doing it more for yourself? Yeah, really. It was kind of like, a, looking back, was a kind of therapy in a way because um, kind of meditative as well because you're, you're focusing on a particular technique of playing. But at the same time, you're getting into this kind of headspace where you really just stop... Uh, thinking too much about what you're doing and um, which is really one of the things that occurs with meditation is where the thinking mind uh, tends to um, fall away and uh, and when we do that we really finally sort of get some some real tranquility in the mind and um, and also at the same time you're, you're working on developing your concentration as well right playing a musical instrument so um, those two things, concentration and tranquility, are a major part of meditation as well. <clears throat> and Will, can you tell me what style of music it was that you were attracted to? In the beginning, it was all about very emotional music, so um, emotions, uh, music which would make me cry, mm. really. That was uh, in my teens. Um, that was really, uh, really important to me to have all these, to have these emotions being dragged out of me and uh and i guess that kind of moved more towards anger as well so i really liked having music which was um not overt, overtly angry you know it was it wasn't really like death metal or anything like that but um you'd find that there was a lot of frustration and anger which was being expressed by most of the bands that i was really getting into so um 
Yeah, there was that. Plus, there was also this feeling of discovering something new. So, um, back in those times, there was no internet. So, we'd be trying to discover new sounds and new bands and new styles of music that um, we'd never heard of before. Um, so, that was also a big part of it, that kind of um, journey of discovery and finding something new that uh, your friends hadn't heard before and then sharing that with them. <coughs> that, that whole process was definitely a big part of it, yeah. Yeah, cool. And did you find it hard to establish those groups of like-minded people within that sphere of things with creating music and being players? Uh, it wasn't. It kind of happened quite easily for me because my, um, well, I had one or two close friends during kind of the last few years of high school and we were completely aligned as far as what our tastes were and what we really liked. Um, and then once I went to university, then it was funny, within, I guess, a couple of hours of arriving there, I'd already met, like, the group of people I was going to be hanging out with for the next <laughs> three or four years. And that was that was based on the, a band T-shirt that one guy was wearing. And that was, so I just went straight up to him and went, oh, you know, I love that, I love that band. <clears throat> and then that was it. We were all just suddenly just um, getting to know each other through music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what cool. band? What, what band was it? A, a band called um, The Smiths. Yes, so okay. You, heard mm -hmm. you know The Smiths? Yeah. yeah. So, um, and this guy had a Smiths shirt on and, yeah, so immediately we became kind of a gang of uh, mis misunderstood Smiths fans. <laughs> <laughs> and did you find that once you're getting to uni and kind of, I guess, going into that adulthood, I guess, did you find that the music and creativity changed or you kind of got more in tune with things? Um, definitely the kinds of music I, w I was listening to changed a lot. I was... I guess I was getting more into singer-songwriter bands, so <clears throat> maybe just a solo artists, um, such as uh, Billy Bragg, who was a particular guy, I don't know whether you know, know him, um, where he was singing more about everyday life and love and relationships and um, the kind of trials and tribulations that go on with just just trying to be a regular person in society um, so I guess uh, that came about as I um, was starting to experience those things as well and really get the get an idea of how um, difficult matters of the heart can be mm. when, when you're out there by yourself yeah yes <laughs> yeah, for sure. There's one guy in particular called Billy Bragg, and he's an English singer-songwriter. So, and he is older than me, of course. So, I think I was going to him as if he was a big brother. You know? Oh, that's beautiful. Um, yeah. So, tell us about your transition from your previous life into the one you're living now. When I had turned 40 years old, I was um, really just feeling very burnt out, quite fed up with with um, my life, feeling very uninspired, bored. So I needed to um, try and shake things up. And um, I guess I should mention at that point, I never really had a career and I was never, I wasn't very successful with uh, long-term relationships. Um, so I was at there I was 40 years old, kind of really just single and with no career. 
and um, really I was just it was just music and escaping listening to music which was all I really did and I other than that I would just find a job which was normally physical labor because I was um, I was uh, convinced that I needed to you know protect my brain from <laughs> from <laughs> meaningless uh, uh, work you know and, and uh, <laughs> If it was just physical labor I was doing for money, then at least then my mind was protected. It was just my body that I was um, giving, you know. Mm. Anyway, so by the time I turned 40, a lot of my friends had been married and were having families of their own. And I was just feeling more and more uh, kind of unhappy and, and um, unsatisfied, you know. And uh, so I decided to go to Thailand for two months just to to see if I could really find um, uh, a new path for, my, for the rest of my life. Um, I was really searching for a new direction because I just, I really felt as though I just, I had really run out of um, inspiration with everything I was involved with at that point. So I came to Thailand for two months and, and immediately I felt an attraction to the place. And I, so I was just trying to work out, okay, how can I live here in, in Thailand? What's, what's the way I can do that? And at first it was really um, <coughs> English teaching, which was, I was drawn to because I was meeting so many Western English teachers, you know, who, who just came over. And you don't need an English teaching degree or anything like that, so it was quite immediate and quite accessible to me. So uh, I think it... I came to about a week before I needed to come back to Australia and I knew everything I needed to know about how to be a teacher in Thailand. I'd spoke, spoken to so many different teachers um, but still there was a part of me which was thinking, you know, this isn't, I don't think that's going to last. I don't think that's really my calling. And then uh, around that time a Thai person invited me to go to a, to a Buddhist temple because they were making offerings to um, the monks at a temple. And uh, I mean, I just said, yeah, of course, straight away. I said, yeah, I really need to do that. And uh, so the following day we went to a temple and I'd kind of assumed that um, I would just get to the temple and they would go off and do their kind of special Thai ceremony and I would just walk around by myself, you know, kind of exploring a temple maybe. But uh, that wasn't the case, you know, they kept kind of pulling me into this ceremony and this whole process and they, they really wanted me to experience it and be a part of it. Um, and it was at one point during that ceremony I just suddenly felt myself uh, floating. I felt like I was floating off. Just this huge weight was lifted off my, off my back, off my shoulders. And I had no idea what was going on, you know, <clears throat> but I was there right in it, you know. And I'd never really experienced that before. So... Uh, that's when I thought, okay, there's, there's something about this, you know. And um, then I decided, just the thought came that, okay, I'm going to be a monk in Thailand. And um, so the ne following week I travelled back to Australia and told mum, my mum, that's what I was going to do. And she went fine. And um, so I moved in with mum and um, got a job in a cafe for a year, saving money, and then came back to Thailand and actually found uh, a temple to to be ordained at very, very quickly. It was really quite quite strange how quickly everything just fell into place. <coughs> yeah, so that's kind of the that story, or most of it anyway. 
how was the transition from your previous life into this life that you that you live now? Like when you when that first happened and you were ordained, was it like an immediate transition and like you felt completely different from that moment? Or was it definitely something you had to feel like you got you had to get used to? Uh, I guess it was both 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 of those things. So um, a big part of that that first time I was ordained was that um, I felt like I'd sort of plucked something out of the air. You know, um, the whole time leading up to that, I really didn't have any idea about how to be how to become ordained. And um, you know, I'd spent a year saving money with a plan. And I just had one plan, I'm going to Thailand to be a monk. Uh, the details I had no idea of, you know. And uh, <laughs> so once I, and then even once I arrived in Thailand, I still didn't know how it was going to happen. I knew nothing about it at all. <coughs> so f- to finally actually have to, to achieve that goal, um, that was huge. It was very, um, uh, I guess, reassuring, you know, and... Um, and just thought, wow, this is the first time in my life I've really just gone for something which, you know, uh, had perhaps like a 10% chance of being achieved. If any of that, it was just a complete mystery, right? Yeah. And then suddenly within, uh, I guess, um, I guess it was around, a, within a month of arriving in Thailand, it was done. I was, I was in robes. I was, wow. So, <clears throat> so that was a huge part of it, just experiencing that because I never really had that sort of, you know, just being inspired to do something, which just felt like it was very, it was coming from within, you know. And uh, in the past, I tended to, I was kind of a bit of a lost lamb, you know. I was just following other people and being with other people who had a strong sense of where they were going. <coughs> I was kind of doing that kind of thing. So that w- this was the first time that, that I just sort of, done something for myself so that was that was a big part of the transition for me <coughs> but um, on another level once I'd been ordained <coughs> then a whole new kind of journey began and that was a very long a long journey you know mm. did you ever feel like that feeling of fuck what did I just do or did you feel like that since you'd had that experience of that weight being lifted and felt very directed of where it was going to go, even though you don't know the chances of it working out, did you just always feel right about it? Yeah, I just felt I just felt so certain about about this is what I'm going to do, um, and I'm just going to do it. You know? And and then once I become ordained, then I was a hundred percent committed. You know, I was I had zero doubt that this is where I needed to be and everything was in its right place, you know, that I'd I'd somehow aligned myself with with something. Um, And uh, a funny thing happened too, I think it was about a month after I ordained, someone I used to play in a band with contacted me out of the blue and he sort of asked me what I was up to. I said, oh, actually I've just become a Buddhist monk. And um, and he said, "Oh wow! I remember when we were twenty years old, we um, were pl- having a conversation game where we were trying to guess what what we'd be in when we're forty years old." And I, I told him, "Oh, I'd, I'd be a Buddhist monk," and wow. I completely forgotten that conversation. So you know, <laughs> did you actually? Yeah, yeah. I said I predicted wow. it and forgotten about it. You know. <laughs> wow, that's actually really cool. <laughs> I can't believe that. Yeah, so all these things kept happening where it, and these were just, you know, these things were just telling me I'm on the right, mm-hmm. I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's some reassurance if I've ever heard it. That's I know. <laughs> How good is that? That's unbelievable. And what did he end up being? Did he predict correctly <laughs> or, or badly? <laughs> I can't remember. I can't remember. I can't remember that part of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, um, oh, well, the one thing that I was quite interested in is that seeing if you found like because you utilize music a lot to channel your creativity and emotions and kind of dealing with things. How have you supplemented that going into being a Buddhist monk? Have you Do you still rely on music and chanting as that bit of an outlet or have you found other creative ways? Well, because uh, I'm a Theravada monk, you probably, I think I told you this before, George, maybe, but we're, we're forbidden to listen to music and <clears throat> to dance and all these kinds of things, um, courage not to not to escape, not to have any escaping um, mechanism. Um, and the idea there is that we, uh, in order to um, move closer towards uh, a, a very pure happiness, um, we need to understand suffering and difficulties and dissatisfaction and all those things which which we tend to try to escape from you know so so for that yeah. reason um we're, we're forbidden to 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 get involved in that you know there's once you become a, a a buddhist monk the idea is that there's no there is no escape <laughs> you have to keep facing mm. your the problems that your own pain whatever that may be and <clears throat> just the difficulties difficulties of being mm. a human being and it, i mean for me i was fortunate because by the time I'd become a monk, I've I'd sort of I felt like I'd broken music. It didn't work anymore because I'd just been so reliant on it for for most of my life that it wasn't enough for me to mm. escape anymore. So uh, it didn't really. At, so for, for that reason, I was I was I was fine with that. Just cutting all of that out. But it's only just been recently, mm. in the last month or so, that I'm starting to feel like. Doing something like um, uh, painting. I'm trying. Thought I might do some getting to some painting. Well, actually, I did get off the phone with Mum just then, and she told me you've um, had a parcel delivery of some description, or you went and purchased something. Yes, yeah, so I've just bought some. Got a hold of some acrylic paints <coughs> uh, because I recently, for some reason, I suddenly became very interested in um, abstract uh, expressionist uh, art. So Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and uh, really that kind of start, got sort of got me thinking, oh, you know, because it can be very, it's very therapeutic, I think, uh, abstract art in particular. Mm. So um, I'm curious about uh, how we, I can combine that with Buddhist practice and um, also with helping other people and yeah, seeing what will come of it. That's amazing. But as far as mu- as far as music goes, um, we do do lots of chanting. It's a big part of our uh, of our life. And um, but it's uh, it's uh, it's a very strange thing chanting uh, to do, and it sort of doesn't fall into that kind of creative expression um, because well, if it does, it's a very yeah, it's a very peculiar kind of form of that. Uh, because we're mainly we're memorizing very long chapters of chanting in an um, ancient um, Indian language, which is called Pali. So um, <coughs> you know, I can s- I've spent many many years just memorizing chapters, and so 
So when I'm actually reciting them, really the main focus is not making a mistake with the um, uh, as I chant. Um, so there isn't much room there for a, a creative kind of element. But I think now, mm -hmm. uh, so I'm coming up to around nine years now, um, that whole experience is changing a bit more. And I'm noticing different styles of chanting and things like that. But um, mm -hmm. the main idea, though, is just to re be mindful um, of what you're doing as you're chanting. And uh, that's, that's kind of the main, mm -hmm. where the main benefit comes from, for me anyway. Now, I remember when I came for my visit a few years ago and um, we got to meet up with Ajahn Olm and I'll, like, I honestly, it was it was really awesome to see and just mesmerizing to listen to when you both, when we were on, um, I think it was, where were we? Uh, we went, can't remember where it was, not Doisutep. Um, was that a waterfall? <clears throat> yeah, it was where that beautiful waterfall and that spring that was incredibly clear. Oh, it was just a beautiful, I got, I've got some really good photos from that. <laughs> when we went there but I recorded um when both of you started chanting and it was it was really incredible to watch and listen to and um, if you don't mind I'll definitely try to share that with Barbie of course that was really incredible to to just hear you guys start doing that uh, I thought it was quite incredible I hadn't really ever seen anything like it yeah yeah that was that was quite surreal wasn't it <laughs> It was very surreal. Especially with like the, where we were on, so Barbie, we're on the top of this mountain where there's this calcium, like a spring anyway. And so went to, to the top where this spring was, where all the water's coming out of, and it was just incredibly clear. And then deeper down, it was just this blue that I, you wouldn't read about it. You wouldn't see it anywhere else. And and then as we were leaving this area is that um, Ajahn Om, he was he was an incredible character, that's for sure, and he had these amulets that he'd made. He was wearing wow. bones and teeth and all these interesting trinkets and and whatnot. And then the both of them just started breaking out in this, um, this chant and it was really quite incredible to listen to both of them just kind of being in this sink. And then, and then we decided <laughs> to climb down this calcified waterfall. It was quite an experience. Experience. Well, you mentioned before we started recording because no one can see this at the moment, but you've you've got you've got all the gear set up there that you actually do um, online meditations. Yeah, is this something that um, is this something that you do for a particular community, or is it something that you wanted to do for people? How did that kind of come about? So there was, um, uh, I think it was about maybe six years ago, there was an American uh, man who came to visit the temple I was staying at and he was there for about three or four days. Um, and because I'm the only Western monk there, that uh, whenever a Westerner came to stay, I would take them under my wing and um, really be spending lots of time with them each day <coughs> and helping them with their practice or whatever it may be. So. Um, it was this particular guy, um, he returned back to America and I think it was maybe about a year and a half ago he reached out to me again and we started um, catching up online and then he had the idea uh, that he wanted to start an online Buddhist meditation, Dharma uh, class oh. because I think at the time he had a, a regular teacher in America who was, had taken one or two months holiday there's a lay person over there who's a Buddhist scholar who was uh, had their own group. And um, that's when he thought, oh, well, maybe I can just start something else up, you know, because he didn't want to. He really valued being able to uh, do something regularly without 
you know, without taking two months off, for example. So he, it was his idea, and he asked me whether, whether I'd be interested, and uh, I thought, yeah, f- of course, yeah, definitely. Wow. Why not? And I'd never really done anything like that before. In, up until that point, I'd really just helped people one-on-one while I was staying at uh, the temple where I lived. So it was more like a conversational kind of teaching, you know, during those times where I'm just kind of hanging out with these people over at least five days, maybe ten days, and we just slowly get to know each other and then it becomes very natural as far as what kind of teachings I bring up and uh, explain to them. And, um, you know, it's quite an organic kind of natural experience. But uh, So this was the first time I'd kind of formal class where I'm you know meeting up with a class for a set period of time and I'm out the front and um, I'm kind of running program some kind of schedule which works yeah so that's how that's how it began and um, we just kept going with that over the last year year or so and yeah it's been going very well Uh, but I was it's kind of like one of those things where I jumped into the deep end with that and I was really working out what works um, as we were going along and also kind of working with the online way of uh, communicating, <coughs> all that kind of stuff. So, but it, it's really turned out to be a really good thing and I've learned so much about you know, what works online and, uh, and how to explain um, teachings to people, how to kind of organise different teachings, you know. Um, there's so many, you know, there's around 82,000 uh, written chapters in uh, the Buddhist sort of canon. So it's r- for the first time I needed to actually kind of sit back and reflect on which particular chapters work uh, with, with practice, with meditation, and how do I present those in the simplest way, you know, so that people can really mm. soak them in very quickly and receive the benefits from them really quickly as well mm-hmm. yeah so that's been really really good and and now i have a you know a bunch of friends uh, in america you know, which is <laughs> which is quite remarkable but they're kind of planning to get me over there sometime next year possibly for a one month visit and just to go around and meet everyone and perhaps do some some short retreats of some kind or other yeah, so that's how that came about. Amazing. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that in the past I would have sort of avoided, you know, if someone asked that, I would have probably said, my first answer would have been no. <laughs> um, but uh, since being, after being a monk for a while, I guess you get to, you develop um, a strong uh, confidence in yourself and uh, and you realise there's really nothing to lose, you know, and it's just saying well, that scares, that's really scary, but uh, let's do it. Mm. <laughs> and and do you think the, the teachings of mindfulness and meditation for the average person out there can help with their own creative journeys? I know mindfulness is such a thing at the moment that everyone's trying to be mindful and everyone's trying to get on the meditation bandwagon, but the authenticity of it is obviously very different from what we do to what you do. How do you think it can help people? I think anything, you know, the, the, the whole idea of meditation, it's really about cultivating uh, a mind which is useful, you know, which is easy to have. So in that way, anything you're doing to develop your mind is having a, a positive impact on your life, whatever, whatever it may be. 
because everything starts in the mind, you know. If you're being creative or you're trying to start something up, that's involving speaking um, and bodily movements of some kind or other to, you know, to kind of make things happen. But for you to speak in a way which is skillful or to behave in a way which is skillful, then um, you need to look at your mind because, you know, uh, the mind comes first before an action, you know, or or a thought or uh, a plan, all these kinds of things, you know. So anything which is developing your mind has to be beneficial in, in your life. You know, it's it's inevitable for that to be the case. Yeah. Do you think, well, I guess what would you say to people who, you know, I'm sure that there's some people out there listening thinking that there might be that it's not for them or they're kind of too far gone at a point where they can't be mindful or be as strong within that aspect, I guess, what would you say to those people? Well, um, once you start getting into it, you realize that the, the Buddha was completely aware of how difficult this was. You know, there was a point after his after he'd worked it out and attained full liberation where he wasn't so keen to help others because he just he had he thought that it was just too it was too difficult to explain to people. But um, he had a change of heart, and thankfully he, he began teaching and started this whole kind of uh, Buddhist community. You know, this is two and a half thousand years ago or so. So uh, he kind of designed it so that it, it was doable, you know, for, for people in lay life. And so once you kind of get into it, if you find the right teachings, then... Uh, the practice is is layered, you know. It's you're going step by step. So there's three three particular elements of Buddhist practice. The first one would be moral uh, discipline, or developing your ethical behaviour, is the first step. And this is the first step because it's the easiest thing to do. So all you're doing here is you're starting to look at how you speak and and how you live, and working out whether it is actually uh, ethical. So when we're talking about ethics, we're just really talking about is it skillful? Is the way I'm speaking and behaving and living, is it good for me or is it, is it actually creating problems for myself? So that's the first, uh, that's where you first start. And then the next step from there is when you start <coughs> getting into meditation and developing mindfulness and concentration in particular. So so by the time you're ready to, to get into, you know, things like sitting meditation, you've done the work already to prepare yourself for that to be, uh, so you can actually do it, you know. And then the final step is uh, the attainment of insight or wisdom. But you can only move into that once you've, your concentration has developed enough. And then <coughs> quite naturally you start to develop wisdom <coughs> and insight into what this human experience is mm. and then from there it just starts to become easier you know <coughs> like a simple thing would be the notion of um, impermanence generally uh, we tend to behave in a way where we, we we sort of project out onto the world this kind of sense of permanence so this is a very simple buddhist technique is to start and start to notice how impermanent everything is how every single thing is in flux i mean it's a great it's a fun game to to play with yourself is to try and 
actually come up with one single thing that exists uh, in this entire universe which is unchanging. And uh, you can't find, it's, it's just not there, right? So this is a, an easy way to really start to develop some insight into this, into life. Uh, it starts, you start to break down here the concepts that we project onto the world and onto other people. And once we start to do that, this strong kind of projection or idea that we have of the world we live in starts to break up. And you notice that once that starts to break up, that lots of our problems in life were coming from from the whole process that we're, we're involved in there. So a good example would be that if we're unhappy, uh, there's a tendency within an untrained mind to behave as if we're going to be unhappy for the rest of our lives. It's, we're stuck. It's permanent, right? And this can, then we become un unhappy about being unhappy. And it just sort of gets worse and worse and worse. <coughs> So um, when we start to see the impermanence in things more and more, we, we start to develop a deep understanding that when we're unhappy, that it's just temporary. Then the same goes with when we're happy. When we're happy, we, we assume that it's permanent, that it's going to last. But it, uh, this naturally isn't the case. So the happiness we're feeling will eventually dissipate. Now, when we're trying to project this kind of permanent conceptual kind of life uh, into the world, something, something good happens, something pleasant happens, and we, we cling to it and we try to trap it. And we think, oh, perhaps oh, I've done it. I've, I've, I've reached this level of happiness and this is going to last, right? even if it's kind of subconsciously we're doing this, and then once naturally it goes out, that level of happiness drops, then that becomes a huge problem for us again, right? So this is all just from starting to look at the world as being impermanent. We start to shake ourselves out of that, that trap of um, wanting more of the pleasant things and wanting to further and further away from unpleasant things or unpleasant states of mind. So, you know, it's, so I guess what I say to people who may feel as though it's some kind of a, some kind of a special mystical practice that, that's not for them because they're just regular people, all this kind of thing. It's not the case with Buddhism at all. Buddhism um, is very pragmatic, and very down to earth. A lot, of the a lot of the progress you make is just from being able to observe what's going on. And then it's about empirical evidence as well. Rather than when we're meditating in Buddhism, we're not trying to get ourselves into some kind of a mystical state, you know, um, of bliss. That that isn't the um, the goal of Buddhist practice at all. It's actually far more pragmatic than that. And the the one goal of Buddhist practice is to end suffering, and that's it, right? So if we're getting into trying to get into some kind of a blissful state of mind, then we're, we're still in it. We're, we're back in at the same problem again. We're, we're ch chasing this, this pleasant sensation or experience. But, ev but, you know, even in meditative, deep meditation states, they also dissipate as well. So that's not the answer, right? 
the answer is developing insight and this comes through this is where mindfulness becomes important because we need to just be able to actually observe start observing what's going on what's happening when it's happening and then uh, you know we're trying to change it's like trying to change a habit basically we're trying to change lots of different mental habits that we're we're locked into that we've kind of taken on subconsciously as we've uh, live, live as we live our lives so I guess that's a really good way to look at it it's more just about changing habits dropping unskillful habits picking up skillful habits and then how do we develop and maintain those skillful habits while reducing the likelihood of unskillful habits uh, continuing and have you found that since with I guess the thing that really kind of sparked me there out of that was that just instantly thinking of social media and how that trying to preserve a moment or trying to preserve this feeling or this persona that we're trying to put out there do you feel that that kind of attitude towards social media and the impacts that it can have on that kind of thing do you think that that has taken people away from what we should really be doing in that regards to, you know, seeing, realising impermanence and gaining insight? Well, I don't think social media is a problem, but um, if we use it in an unskillful way, then it can be very problematic, right? So, Mm. I mean, you can use social media for lots of good reasons and you you can do that. You can, you know, I mean, if you're in business or... Even myself, if I wanted to ex- expose myself in some way uh, on social media, then um, that's fine. But if I haven't, if I, as long as I don't forget that the, all this is impermanent, and if I'm projecting some kind of image of myself on social media, as long as I'm mindful of the fact that that's what I'm doing, and it's actually a fantasy, but this is an acceptable way of communicating and reaching out to people right as long as we keep all that in mind Mm. then then it it shouldn't be so problematic you know but the problem is is when we if we're building up a concept of ourselves that we want to project and show other people the problem is when we fall into the trap of actually starting to believe the concept and think you know we start to identify Mm. with that to such a to such a point where it becomes really dysfunctional and and um, dangerous, you know. So, so I think um, mm. as long as you're you're developing your own ethical behavior, um, developing your concentration uh, and mindfulness, and also working towards uh, insight, then you can use social media in a way which is fine. Well, that's really good to at least keep note of, and and hopefully everyone can keep in mind when you know, making a post on social media or what kind of, what are they trying to put out there and portray? Is it something that they're being mindful of or something that's kind of as more of an escape and and putting something out there that isn't quite actually as it seems? Yeah, I mean, you need to, um, I mean, uh, need to just sort of become more aware of what it is you're doing and why you're doing it. And it's it's a slow process, Mm. you know. You can't just suddenly see everything see the truth in everything because um you know there's many many years of not doing that and then living in a society where that's not encouraged either so it can take quite a while to kind of dig down and 
and really just sort of notice more and more what it is you're up to. <clears throat> and this is the benefit of mindfulness. It's because you're just starting to you're starting to notice more and more what it is you do, you know, which can be um, mm. really uh, at times very difficult. Confronting. Very confronting, right? Yeah, because <laughs> you start to realize, you know, I mean, I mean, for myself before being a monk, I would always remember my my highlights. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. highlight reel from my from my past, um, <clears throat> and I cling to that like uh, that was the one one of the things w- w- that would keep me afloat was like ah, oh. and uh, you know you're getting trapped in all this kind of p- perfectionism and things like this, mm. and then when you do that, you're also this also um, conditions you to be more judgmental of others because you're because you just. You haven't accepted yourself yet, and so we tend mm. to gloss over our 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 bad days or our bad habits, and really highlight you know our good habits and our our good moments, and uh, we're just becoming more and more deluded uh, with 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 what's going on. Um, so this is one of the great things about mindfulness practices that you that starts to cut through all of that kind of mist you know and this whole fantasy right Mm. um and what's important about this as well is that when you start to do that with yourself you learn quite quickly that you need to be very compassionate and understanding with yourself because you're starting to see all these things about you which you you didn't want to know about which you had avoided um and so when you start going through that experience of you realizing I, I have to be compassionate with myself, otherwise I can't get through this, uh, then you start to be more compassionate with other people and more understanding when you see someone else who's, not, who's having a rough day or someone who's behaving in a, an unethical way or an unskillful way. We're less and less likely to just uh, ha- reflex have a reflex judgment on that person right mm. that, that's one of the amazing things which which happens with with mindfulness itself so i don't and i've forgotten your question completely. <laughs> i think you answered it anyway <laughs> <laughs> you definitely did you definitely did it was um based on kind of the what what influence social media could have in in regards to this i guess nearly a battle like that's that's kind of something that was really in my mind there is that how people could see a battle between needing to be mindful and conscious and of what's happening and how social media can really challenge that and challenge that self-truth I guess in in what you should be believing in yourself or putting your mind to whereas I know I think well I shouldn't say I know I don't know but I think there'd be a lot of people out there that are putting out a persona that that isn't, you know, it's all glossy. It's making everything look like everything's okay rather than being more realistic and and kind of more or less using it as an escape to get away from probably the trials and tribulations that people are facing. Yeah. But no, it's it's definitely, I think, I know I'm just listening here going, I mean, I'm writing this down mentally, you know, and keeping note for myself because it's definitely something that I've been wanting to to work on. And I think it's um, at least reassuring because like you said, is that and just breaking down to those different achievable steps. It makes it feel easier to get into because if you look at the bigger picture, I guess for me, it's that it looks too hard it's not for not that it's not for me but oh I must be too far gone and um and guess yeah being able to break that down really shows that that 
you know, it is accessible to anyone and everyone and, you know, and do you feel that it has to be dependent on having a particular following to a particular group or can you kind of do it just, you know, without having a particular tying to a faith of any description, can you kind of go about mindfulness without having a particular tie or having to feel like that I feel like some people would probably think that they've got to identify with a particular group of people or could you approach it in just a way that it's going to be a way of life and a way of living? The Buddha was spoke a lot about the importance of um, spiritual friendship, right? So he was really point highlighting there that you're better off if you, you're surrounding your, yourself with people who are um, supportive of what, you're, what it is you're trying to do, right? Um, so in that sense, mm. um, it is important to, to have some kind of a community that's very, very beneficial. Uh, but, I mean, for me, that's very unnatural for me, like uh, because of my whole life I've, mm. I've always had this kind of, you know, I'd had this tendency to, you know, I need to do this by myself and very, very sensitive to, to judgment. So if someone else tried to help me, then I would, <clears throat> I would just completely, it just wouldn't stick, you know. Because I was like, no, 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 this is up to me, you know. <laughs> yes, I can completely understand that. We're clearly yeah. related. <laughs> Quite yeah, clearly so we're related, I've really yes. got that going on too. But um, what I've realized since since follow, becoming a monk is that, oh, actually, no, it actually is okay <laughs> to, to, have, to let someone, you know, support you. Uh, but still, I, I can only take so much myself personally but this idea of having a, a community some kind of a community maybe it's just a community of two two people or three people or whatever it is 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 actually it has a function which which is supportive um with what you're trying to do then as far as um say faith or different religions or, or whatever that may be um <clears throat> the importance uh I guess to, I can answer that in a different way, um, and I think Bob, you brought this up with um, the way mindfulness is um, quite popular at the moment, and some kind of mindfulness, right? Is that um, the ethical component is is vital to any kind of mindfulness or meditation practice? That, you know, this is why the Buddha. This is why I mentioned earlier. You look at your ethical behavior first. That's that's your first port of call, is to look at that. So if you're, I mean, in a simple way to explain this is that a, a psychopath could be have a very strong uh, mindfulness, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> True. <laughs> Sorry. Right? <laughs> that went a different way than I expected, but let's learn. But that's you know that and that's just a really simple way to 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 highlight the, the importance of ethics that ethics ethical behaviour has in in this practice, right? So, <laughs> uh, so that I, I prefer to look at it in that in that way that you need ethical some kind of ethical behaviour, some kind of reflection on your ethical behaviour and what that's like, and you need to set up some kind of guide. For some principles there to say so that you can actually work on that, you know. So it can be uh, right speech, uh, the way you speak, no stealing, you know, uh, no killing, um, no sexual misconduct. So this is basically if your your sexual behaviour is ethical, then it's not causing problems for anyone, right? 
that kind of thing. So there, there are these kind of principles which you can use. And uh, in Buddhism, these are they're, they're tra training guidelines, right? So all you're saying is, well, I am willing to start to, to actually look at how I behave based on these particular principles. And it doesn't mean you suddenly have to be perfect. And it doesn't mean that if you're if you make some kind of a error, ethical error in your life, that you're you're not going to be uh, punished for it. It's just more of like this is the now you're 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 starting to learn now. You're you're in the process now of like, and you have to be kind to yourself, you know, <laughs> and while you're doing that. So in that sense, uh, I mean, as far as your faith, what your faith is, it's up to you. But it's really the focus isn't on what kind of group you belong to or, or what kind of faith that is. It's more about where is the ethical kind of guidelines coming from. But you must mm. have you must have that. Otherwise, um, if you're just doing mindfulness practice and not addressing your, your own ethical behavior, then that'll be very problematic. Because <coughs> mm. uh, another mm. thing to do with mm. mindfulness is there, it tends to be, people tend to speak about mindfulness as being very uh, passive kind of observance of what's going on and just really developing your ability to kind of just observe and just let things happen. And that's only half mm. of mindfulness practice, okay? That's the first step is at, at least being able to do that. So you're seeing what, the main goal is you're seeing what's coming into your mind and, and you keep seeing this more and more and more that you start to notice these kind of patterns, you know, of like, and you realize that mental states like emotions and things like that will come up without any real cause. They just come up, you know, and there's no, you can't even explain it. Sometimes you can, it's very easy to explain, right? But other times you're noticing, oh, what is going on here? You know, like I was having a fine time, everything, my external conditions are perfect. Suddenly my mind state is, I've, I've got an emotional uh, mind state which is um, difficult. So that 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 uh, ability to observe is an, uh, an important part of mindfulness. But there's another part, another side to mindfulness, which is then you start to you start to have to actually discern what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. So you start to notice if you you have a, a negative mind state coming up, such as anger or frustration, say, or you're judging someone or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. uh, observational ability uh, allows you to suddenly see that when it comes up <clears throat> but then you're starting to discern okay this is unskillful so I need less of this you know so you, you're trying to discard that as quickly as you can and then you're also noticing the, the wholesome and skillful mind states that are coming up as they're coming up and you're able to discern oh this is actually this has benefit right so then you're trying to sustain that kind of uh, state of mind. But then you're also trying to um, encourage more of that to occur in, in your life, right? Mm. This is uh, sometimes some of these details are lost in, in uh, the kind of um, shortened version of mindfulness, which is kind of spoken about, you know. Well, I have to tell you, a couple of ep episodes ago, I told Georgie that she needs to download a mindfulness app on her phone. And I'm sitting here thinking, <laughs> hang on, <laughs> you are her mindfulness 
have at the moment and you are not utilising this. <laughs> Probably not to the fullest extent, but trust me, I've definitely had moments where I've called upon Will to, to <laughs> lend me some wisdom. Yeah, yeah. but, but uh, the, the most important thing is just the, 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 the importance of ethic, ethics, you know, that you can't, you can't skip that bit you know, in life. Mm. Mindfulness mm. isn't going to work backward. You know, you need to, uh, you need to address your ethic, ethical behaviour um, uh, initially that, you know, that really is required. And it's just those three things, if you can keep those in mind, which is ethical behaviour, um, concentration, and, and finally insight or wisdom. And, uh, and the order in which you, you're doing those is actually pragmatic, and uh, it's not by accident, right? So, if you're un- if you're becoming more ethic- ethically sound in how you live, then it's natural that you have less. Your mind becomes easier because you're spending less time feeling bad about something that you've done in the past. So, where you you know tend to have guilt or remorse come up, or just anxiety of like. You know, like oh, I've, you know, I've done it again, or I've upset someone, I've hurt someone, all of these kinds of things. When that's still going on, then it's not possible to develop your concentration because your mind is just too agitated. So that's why we do ethics first, mm. because it, if you don't, then it's impossible to to move on to the concentration, which is where you're getting into more meditative states. You know, so it's very pragmatic in the, in the way that's done, and then. Okay, so you're you started to work on your ethical behavior and it's improving a lot. Then suddenly you realize you're able to concentrate more because because of the impact that that's had on on your mind, the kind of mind you, that you have. And then you okay, well, I'm concentrating. And then and then they keep playing back and forth again, you know, as you're developing your mindfulness and your concentration, then you're becoming more and more aware of different parts of your your ethical life that may need some work as well right and so it's going back and forth like that <clears throat> and then you and then the, the final step which is insight can only be achieved if when your mind is calm and your concentration has developed and then quite naturally you start to see you know it just becomes easier to make good decisions <laughs> it becomes easier. Everything mm. becomes easier because you're. It's a gradual kind of process, you know. But um, just, I guess there's one more thing I want to quickly say about that is that you don't have to be ethically perfect though before you start uh, working on the other things, you know. Phew. You just need to go <laughs> <laughs> because no one, no one would ever practice, right? No one's ever. So it's all about just you just don't getting getting it under control a bit, you know, and you and you. And naturally, your mind becomes more useful, and you're able to to be more mindful. You're able to develop your concentration as well. So, and then that goes back, and then it, you know, just sort of works. You know, all these things are intertwined and support each other. But yeah, don't think that you have to be perfect. <laughs> if, you're, if you're perfect, then there's no need to practice, True. right? Mm. Mm, true. And I think, look, I think, Barbie, you, you had a really great question that you brought up to me earlier oh, um, that I think you should definitely ask. <laughs> was this, my question was, how do you believe that your, your Buddhist practices help forge connections within, I guess, your, your communities? Well, I think um, uh, Buddhist practice 
um, helps with communication. So really just being able to interact and communicate with others um, becomes easier, right? Yeah. Because you, you bec- it becomes easier to listen to people. It becomes easier just to communicate with people in a functional way and in a meaningful way, right? <clears throat> and you tend to be just something as simple as not being so judgmental uh, or not being so uh, emotionally um, involved w- with things or reacting to things with a very strong emotional reaction. This makes it so much easier to communicate with people, right? Because otherwise, if you're, you may be saying, talking to someone one-on-one, and there may be something that they say in the conversation which will actually set off this strange reaction within yourself, which actually has nothing to do with any, anything at all, right? It may just be a word that you have some kind of strange connotation with, right? Which based on your past or something like that. And then suddenly you're, you're having an emotional reaction to, to the, a memory associated to a word this person mentioned, <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, and that's, yeah. and, and, and you're not communicating with that person at that point in time. You're not even in the present, you know, you're, you're, you're acting to this kind of fantasy, this phantom. So, um, you know, Buddhist practice, um, helps reduce the likelihood of those kinds of things coming up. <clears throat> and it's that kind of thing, which allows you to just this clearer vision, right? Of, of what's happening, what's being said, what's going on with relationships you're in that can only just um, <clears throat> help support um, any kind of communication or any kind of relationship that you're you're in uh, whether it be one-on-one or, or, or community relationships all these kinds of things right yeah it was interesting to hear you say earlier how you said after doing this for nearly nine years you felt you had more confidence yeah mm. yeah <laughs> yeah, I, I never probably, I never expected to hear that. I thought that was actually really great to hear. Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. It's a strange. It's, mm. it's not what you're expecting to to hear, right? But um, mm. it comes about just from from facing your your worst your worst demons, you know. Yeah. And your worst, your your all your self doubts, mm. all of these kinds of things. You need to you have to face them, and you're slowly the way that the Buddhist practice is structured. It's doable, so. You have keep having these wins, you know. You're like, suddenly you look back on the last two months and you realize, oh, this particular thing I used to do has stopped happening. Um, you know, you suddenly, oh, I'm not upset about this particular thing anymore. It stopped, right? Yeah. <laughs> so then this 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 develops confidence as well. In the, you're like, oh wow, I I can do this. I can do this, you know. Um, and it's this is a, a big part of Buddha's practice. Is it is the Buddha was just saying, here's some kind of techniques that you can try, but the rest of it is up to you. It, you you know you need to put in the work. Otherwise, it's not going to you know you won't achieve anything. So I guess that yeah I'm just reflecting on the spot here now and like yeah I guess that's I guess that's 
I guess that does lead to a confidence, right? Yeah. And do you think, like, the funny thing is, uh, one thing that resonated with me when I was in school was I had a math teacher say to me is that you don't really know something until you can teach someone that thing. Do you feel that you still have more to learn or do you feel like you have learnt to an extent where you do have that, you you know it in and out that you're able to impart it accurately onto other people and actually teach people? I think um, I know, I think I've experienced um, enough now to have something to say and i'm not sure uh i imagine there is a limit though you know to maybe I'm, yeah i'm not sure but i do feel confident that i i can respond to to people and if they're looking for advice or if i need to uh, help someone i do feel confident that um mm. i can help them in some way mm. the biggest fear biggest fear is just actually completely misunderstanding uh, a teaching and then um, passing that on to someone that is the number one fear you know so the challenge is just to limit what I've done is I've just limited myself and I know my limitations and uh, Buddhist practice is experiential right that's, that's the only way you can move forward it's not a matter of just cognitively comprehending what it means uh, you actually need to practice you need to do this thing and then as you're practicing that's when it really that's when you have these life-changing moments and then then once and that's when for me that's when I have something to offer if if I have like tangibly changed uh, um, an aspect of of the way I behave or the way I live then that's the only way I feel as though I'm qualified to to um, help someone else regarding that kind of thing. Brilliant. If I do get to a point where someone asks me a question and it's not like uh, I don't have this immediate feeling of in my guts or in my heart that that I'm going to be answering them in a, a way which is very which has substance to it, then that's okay too. I can just I just tell them, you know, I can. This is what the Buddha advised regarding this, you know, and then everything's okay. Yeah. Know. Good answer. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I just did. I did just hear the roosters too. By the way, <laughs> they're actually behaving. You know, we have like we have like Bob. We have like I think around thirty or so. Wow. Here at the moment, around twenty-five cats as well. Wow. Oh, you'd love that, Georgie. <laughs> it, it's Barbie. It's a pussy palace. Oh. I tell you what, there was a few temples we went to when when I went to Thailand and visit world. That just the cats, oh, girlfriend, just yeah. No, I'm in I'm in my happy place there. Yeah, that's for sure. Do you have any frequent pussy visitors at the moment, Will? Because I know that within our within our chats, we usually have you know a couple of cats that have been named and and are frequent visitors. But do you have any at the moment that are coming in? Yeah, but there's a couple of um, just last night actually. There was a new cat. Uh, that's never come up to my room before it was just kind of you know I just looked up and it was just there at my door staring at me frozen <laughs> just staring at me like this and I'm like oh and there's there's a family of cats here that are they're always they're always jumpy and and scatty and scared of humans and so this is one of those cats and so it's just like frozen and I I realize the only thing I can do is just ignore it because if I try to engage with it, it will just freak out. So I just like, I just pretend it's not there. I'm watching out yeah. the corner of my eye, then slowly taking more closer steps, you know, into my room. 
Um, so who knows? Um, maybe after a year of another year of that, it may let me uh, touch it. <laughs> maybe touch it. May get a name. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? <laughs> and I guess for those who don't know, and I guess well, Barbie technically doesn't know either. Where, whereabouts in Thailand are you at the moment? Um, I'm right in Bangkok at oh. the moment. So right in the thick of it. Wow. And look, to be honest, I, last time I was in Bangkok with you, I didn't see too many roosters <laughs> plucking around. So they <laughs> are they strictly at the temple or are they free-roaming roosters? They're at the temple. Um, and so there's a monk here who's uh, at some point decided that, that he was going to start a whole um, what do you do, community of chickens and roosters. <laughs> I know in um, in uh, Thailand and probably in most Asian countries, the rooster is a very um, important good luck um, and wealth kind of symbol, uh, charm, whatever. So it could well just be that, you know. All right, Georgie. Well, I think it's time. We need to ask, well, we always ask our guests three questions at the end. Sure. And they're the same okay. questions we ask every single guest. Now, I, I kind of feel like they might be a little bit irrelevant, but we'll see how we go. Okay. <laughs> Georgie, do you want to ask the first one? Awesome. I think this was kind of answered earlier, but let's go with it anyway. If, if your career or your path had no bounds, do you think that you'd be doing something different now? Yes. Uh, well, I'd be on the same path, but I'd just be traveling the world more and, and reaching more people. Oh, nice. That's, that's, that's beautiful. Okay. Number two is what advice would you now give your 15-year-old self now that you're older and wiser? Oh, take it easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, a lot of thought went into that. I like it. <laughs> it did. <laughs> And the last but not least is that what would you say to people who say they are not creative? Um, what would I say? Um, I would uh, advise them to to avoid making such a um, you know such a sure statement about anything to do with themselves, you know, and um, free themselves to be surprised about whatever it is that they may end up doing and whatever their abilities may be um, and try to avoid saying that uh, I am not this or I am not that um, because really we just don't know. I think that's the best answer we've had so far, Georgie. <laughs> that is exactly what I was just about to say, actually. Yep. Yes, that is definitely the best. That takes the takes the cake, I think. Yeah. I think. Uh, well, thank you so much for Will for taking the time out of your day to chat to us mm. and give us some, you know, insight into into what you've learned throughout your time as a monk. And yeah, we really appreciate it. And you've even you always give me something new to think about. That's for sure. Um, mm. And I really, and I know I don't know about Barbie, but I'm sure she appreciates it just as much as I. Definitely. And and I'm excited to hear about your painting. How that goes, Will? Yeah, sure. Well, I'll let you know. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Please share us photos. We mm. definitely want to see how this goes. I will. I've com I'm completely kitted out. You know, I've got like 36 different acrylic paints, colors, and um, uh, about a billion different brushes. And um, <laughs> I've got a really nice book of um, watercolor paper, which is Ooh, lovely. Fine. But I'll, I will. Spiffy. I'll keep you. I'll keep you uh, 
um, inter, uh, informed. That's the word. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're looking for. Thank uh, that's you. awesome. And um, I, I guess before we all go, I, I'd just like to say to Barb, it's really nice to meet you. I've heard a lot about you. You too. And, um, Thank you. Yeah. I just want to wish you the best with everything and um, hopefully we can we can uh, keep in touch in some way or other while we're on our That'd journeys. That would be lovely. Thank I you. I feel, feel very fortunate to, to have met you. So, oh, thank um, you so much. Me too. Now we do have one one ritual that we like to, to keep going, Will, if, if you're happy to partake. And if it doesn't work, well, we're going to edit it so we make it work. Okay. Uh, Barbie, would you like to take it away? Sure. So this is our ritual that we do. <laughs> very, very different to... Uh, the spiritual ritual that you do, Will. So, sure. Will, can I ask, all the way from Bangkok, can we get a whoop whoop? <laughs> whoop whoop. <laughs> oh, God, I love it. Thank you very much, Will. For now, we'll leave you with that and have a great week. Cheers. Cheers.